When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about capitalism and the trillion-dollar coin with Atusa Araxia Abrahamian. She says debt is not the end, at least not for the economists of the Bernie generation. Also, the Attica prison uprising of 1971 and its legacy, Heather Ann Thompson spent a decade digging up the hidden history of that terrible chapter of our past. She just won the Nation Institute's Ridenauer Book Award. But first, why we were wrong about Trump. We thought he would lose. For that, we turn to Rick Perlstein. He's written a series of terrific books on the rise of conservatism in America, starting with Before the Storm on Barry Goldwater, and most recently, Invisible Bridge on the 70s. One note, this interview and the rest of today's podcast were recorded before we got the news that Trump had fired FBI Director James Comey. Rick Perlstein, welcome back. Hi, old friend. How you doing? Good. Nice to be talking to you. I'm especially happy to be talking to you because you are both a serious historian and a brave man. We we were all wrong about Donald Trump. I wrote an article for The Nation headlined, Relax, Trump Can't Win. My God. But, <laughs> You're in worse shape than I was. I don't think I said that in print. But, uh, you know, I said it certainly to all my worried friends because we're all supposed to know something, right? We're, we're experts. We're all supposed to know something. But while all of us said something like that, more or less, you have taken one big step that the rest of us haven't. You published a huge piece in the New York Times magazine headlined, I Thought I Understood the American Right. Trump proved me wrong. So we salute you for your courage and your seriousness as a historian. But let me ask why you decided to take on this project. <laughs> because uh, I, I mentioned something online about uh, how the standard way of telling a story of the right uh, didn't really account for uh, Trump in various kinds of ways. And an editor saw it and said, well, tell me more. And this is the result. Although, also, Trump is part of a genealogy of kind of right-wing reaction in New York City. Yeah. Kind of a tradition specific to New York City that comes out of a particular 
emotional tenor of New York politics. Uh, figures like uh, you know, from going going from Giuliani back through the back through Roy Cohn, uh, back through William F. Buckley when he ran for mayor in 1965. That basically involves you know the fantasy of avenging angels, you know, purging the rotten sewer of a city from the the crimes that are seen you know seen as uh, stemming from liberalism out of control. So that was, you know, you know, people see when us historians, you know, we were asked what are the most important cities or regions, uh, in the history of conservatism. Sure. certainly we talk about Orange County and your listening area. We talk about the South. Uh, we talk about sort of the, uh, the libertarian Southwest, but no one would really say New York city. That's something we need to think about. Yeah. You know, why is it that, Donald Trump had uh, his crowd shouting death wish uh, after the 1974 movie set in New York, where, you know, Charles Bronson starts cutting down muggers in cold blood and becomes a national hero. Well, your starting point is the consensus that we historians of American politics have had and have been, I've been teaching for about 20 years, there is a story that we have all learned about the rise of conservatism in America that worked pretty well until Trump won. Tell us about the consensus. What we call the modern conservative movement was seen to have emerged kind of in the 1950s when it was believed that conservatism was dead in American life, completely irrelevant, uh, which was a, kind of a weird thing to say in the era of Joseph McCarthy and uh, a Congress that, you know, kind of chopped, you know, the National Labor Relations Bill in half in 1947. But there it was. And the idea was that uh, a group of very high-minded intellectuals, uh, largely around National Review, kind of hashed out uh, a fusion of various conservative traditions that had only kind of existed in tatters at that point, and came forth with a very kind of respectable story. Uh, and the story involved William F. Buckley, who was, of course, the publisher and editor of National Review, purging uh, the rough edges from conservatives, you know, right. purging the conspiracy theorists, purging the anti-Semites, purging the likes of Ayn Rand, and emerging with this conservative movement that, you know, it was safe to take home for mother <laughs> and paved the way for Reagan in California and then his presidency. Uh, and sure, you had these crazy militia types and sure you had kind of remnants of the Ku Klux Klan and white supremacists and crazy conspiracy theorists. But they were seen as marginal to the main story. But once Trump comes into view, a couple things happen. First of all, he's a crazy conspiracy theorist. Uh, second of all, this sort of dog whistle conservatism that we've become so familiar with and the conservatives have done such a good job writing the history of kind of gets thrown aside for a train whistle conservatism in which you're allowed to talk about very racist ideas in quite flagrant ways talking about how Mexico is sending them their rapists, sending yeah. us their rapists, is not dog whistle conservatism. And then you have the very people who saw themselves as the guardians of this polite conservative tradition, for instance, in National Review, embracing Donald Trump. Basically, reversing course. During the campaign, National Review had practically a whole issue devoted to doing what William F. Buckley used to do, which was declare crazy people not conservatives. Right. This guy's not, a, not true a true conservative, conservative, so we reject him. 
Right. And and now everything you read in National Review is at the at the, the most generous anti-anti-Trump. But, you know, for a long time, it, when you kind of look back from this perspective, wow, what was going on in National Review during the Tea Party era sure did look a lot like the John Birch Society stuff that they'd supposedly gotten rid of, the, the, the yeah. birther stuff, the idea that the... Um, the you know the Muslim Brotherhood that infiltrated the government. You know the idea that uh, one of the things I discovered was that um, Barack Obama's parents must have been communists because no one except for communists married people from different races. You know crazy stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I realized that we've been much too polite to this movement that really chose Trump as their apotheosis, who was a much uglier figure in so many ways than Ronald Reagan. And a second part of the consensus looked at the grassroots basis of the Goldwater movement. Now, maybe this is just because I've been teaching this history in Orange County, California at UC Irvine. But we considered a book by a Harvard historian named Lisa McGurr called Suburban Warriors to be fundamental work in understanding modern conservatism. This was a book basically about Costa Mesa. I would tell my students, no one ever thought... History had been made in Costa Mesa until Lisa (laughs) McGurk came along. No one at Irvine, which is next door to Costa Mesa, ever considered this possibility. Took someone from Harvard to move out here. But the the thesis was, well, in Costa Mesa, this was a movement of suburban middle class housewives and their husbands who worked in aerospace. These are kind of ordinary Midwestern church going good folk who have this paradoxical idea that big government is bad, even though Costa Mesa exists only because of government uh, funding. But these were not crazy lunatics, you know, far right wing uh, Klan members. These were good suburban folk who formed a grassroots movement that took over the Republican Party in 1964. And then the state of California a couple of years later, and then their movement captured uh, the whole world and and then the world. So what yes, was what McGurr's was... book is McGurr's book has a lot to recommend it, but part of the problem is she's a liberal. She's kind of a social scientist, and liberal social science has uh, you know a canon of ethics which basically says respect your subjects. Yeah, if you think about going to a tribe, uh, you know, out in the bush, you know what they do is going to be considered you know very strange by our Western perspectives. But you don't say it's strange. You don't say they're weird. You try and understand them on their own terms, and this right. can yield a lot of useful things. But uh, a friend of mine uh, named Kim Phillips-Fine, who's a very wonderful uh, historian in her own right, she pointed out something very interesting uh, that became one of the themes of this essay. She said that historians who write about the right should find ways to do so with a sense of the dignity of their subjects, which is certainly what McGurr did, but they should not hesitate to keep an eye out for the bizarre the unusual and the unsettling. Uh, she says, in some ways, uh, the emerging vision of conservatism as part of the political mainstream fails to capture the emotional tone of the movement. And uh, that's a kind of a long-winded say- way of saying when you read histories of conservatism, they don't they don't feel like conservatism, and they don't carry that kind of rage and kind of perversity. The perversity of being anti-government when your paycheck relies on the government. You know, that's strange. That's weird uh, and kind of twisted in its way. And, uh, you know, I give us the example, you know, Tom Keekle, when you were, you know, when we were we were young, you know, he was a senator, a liberal Republican senator from California. And he wrote this angry, freaked out article about his constituents. And he said 10 percent of the mail he was getting in his Senate office 
involved conspiracy theories that people really believed in that the Chinese were going to invade California through Mexico or that the UN was training barefoot African troops in, in Georgia, stuff like that. Wow. And that kind of surrealness was the kind of thing supposedly that uh, William F. Buckley had said, well, we're not interested in that. It was always there, and it's certainly there with Trump. Trump grows up in Queens in the 50s and 60s, and you have very wisely opened our eyes to the, uh, the dark side of politics in New York City in this era. Tell us a little more about that. Right. There's a real line of continuity between uh, the Trump family and Donald Trump himself in this kind of alternate, angry, violent right-wing genealogy. Uh, there's, of course, the fact that uh, his father, Fred Trump, was arrested uh, at a Klan rally in Queens. He was released. We don't know whether he was an associate of the Klan or not. That's kind of in dispute. But what isn't in dispute was that he ran a very, very racist organization. Uh, we know that Woody Guthrie wrote a song yes. in the 1950s. Yeah, <laughs> how segregated his uh, his middle class housing was. You know, I remember back years ago before we really knew about Donald Trump. I saw him as kind of a declension. I was like, well, his dad built this kind of solid housing for the lower middle class. He was a real populist. But Donald Trump was this guy who had to go to New York and build these office towers. Well, turns out that Fred Trump is doing these with, again, massive government subsidies, you know, all kinds of grifts involved. And right, they were whites only. During the 1970s, the, the Justice Department built up an enormously, uh, enormously convincing case against the Trump organization that whenever they, whenever they had applications for people to enter their apartments, they would mark them C for colored. The Justice Department sent out testers, white couples and black couples. The white couples were welcome with open arms. And even the most respectable middle-class black couples were told that nothing was available. Donald Trump was working in the organization. He was named in the suit. Uh, that's how he met Roy Cohn, who, of course, was uh, Joe McCarthy's right-hand man, who came up with the brilliant defense that they weren't discriminating against black people. They were discriminating against welfare recipients, uh-huh. <laughs> which was BS, too. But, you know, they, they settled. But this is, by this time, we're really in the middle, this is the 1970s, what I call kind of Travis Bickles, New York, you know, Charles Brunson's Death Wish, New York, this idea that New York is an open sewer and, you know, kind of hard men who are, you know, kind of willing to do what Donald Trump did, which was register for a handgun permit, were what it would take to rein in the excesses of a city gone mad. And, of course, that reached its apotheosis in 1989, when uh, during the Central Park jogger case, in which five really children, kids, teenagers, were scooped up practically at random, coerced into confessing to this rape of a white woman, were exonerated by DNA evidence. While it had happened, Donald Trump takes out full-page ads in all the New York papers calling for the death penalty, saying he longed for the days when cops were cops. Of course, while that was happening, the cops were torturing someone into a confession. So I don't know what this liberal uh, uh, reigned in constabulatory he was talking about was. And really, if you look about it, look at it in retrospect. He's refused to denounce this. He's refused to acknowledge these people's innocence. And what it looks like to me is a rhetoric that we find very familiar in the history of uh, the racist South, the Ku Klux Klan, and that's the rhetoric of white womanhood defiled by by scary dark people who need to be lynched 
Yeah. What he's talking about is lynching. Rick Perlstein, his sweeping and excellent essay is titled, I Thought I Understood the American Right, Trump Proved Me Wrong. It's at the New York Times Magazine. Rick, thanks so much for talking with us today. Take care. Now it's time to talk about the story of the $1 trillion coin. And for that, we turn to Atusa Araxia Abrahamian. She wrote the lead piece in the nation's special issue, Out from Under Capitalism. Her piece is called Debt is Not the End. She's a journalist based in Brooklyn. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the London Review of Books, Le Monde, and other publications. And she's the author of the book, Cosmopolites, The Coming of the Global Citizen. Atusa, welcome. Hi, nice, nice being on your show. There's an idea out there that the United States Treasury should mint a $1 trillion coin. What is this about? So the trillion dollar coin is a technical workaround that tends to come up when Congress can't come up with a budget. And the, the way it works is that there is an obscure law that allows for the minting of a trillion dollar coin or if any, any coin. It's a commemorative coin, right? This isn't something that you would take to a store in exchange for goods. And it allows for the minting of a coin. And so whenever Congress can't decide what the budget's going to be, people say, oh, well, you know, we, we could just get money by minting this coin. It's legal. Republicans can't get in the way. Democrats can't get in the way. And once we mint this coin, we can deposit it to the Treasury, and poof, all of a sudden there's an extra trillion dollars in the budget to spend on whatever we want. And at a time when people are so fed up with their representatives, um, it's a pretty appealing gambit. What is the relationship of this trillion-dollar coin to modern monetary theory, what's known as MMT. So the trillion dollar coin uh, at the basis of this idea is a notion that money is something we make up, right? Money is not finite. Money is not something you dig from a hole in the ground. Money is, as we all know, not something even that grows on trees. But in the metaphorical sense, it kind of does grow on trees because the government is what creates all the dollars. And it follows from that that the creation of dollars, if the government is in charge, is political. MMT people have been saying this for decades, that as money is a fiat currency, there is no, there's no shortage of dollars. Uh, the government can make them and routinely does make new dollars and makes more money and comes up with more money when it believes that it is the right thing to do. So the government might think it's the right thing to do to start a very expensive war. They usually come up with the money for that. The government maybe doesn't think that it's a great idea to give everybody health insurance. So there's budget problems. They can't find the money. Now, I don't think that MMTers necessarily think that a trillion dollar coin is the best way to go about this, right? They're advocating for a change in perspective about how we think about money, um, a change in perspective about how we think about the economy. And so the trillion dollar coin, it's the hack. It's the conversation starter. It's a way to get into these issues. Uh, but I don't think that anyone in the MMT movement really thinks that that's what's going to save us all. So money is a social construct, and there's no fiscal limit on how much the United States can spend. We don't have to find the money to pay for, for example, universal health care by cutting the budget somewhere else. Is that right? That's exactly right. And, you know, for political reasons, yes, that's what ends up 
having to happen. But uh, if you think about it this way, are the, the, the dollars that you are asking people to pay, are these going directly into whatever it is you're trying to spend on? No, um, it's, it's, it's really the transaction happens behind the scenes and digitally. It's not like there's a transfer of money from one person's pocket to the budget to wherever it's going afterwards. And I think the, the reasoning behind this is that, you know, money is not pegged to gold. Money is a social construct, as you said. And uh, we, we came up with it, and so we can come up with more. I know it sounds very simplistic, but, but that, if you really boil, boil it down to the basics, that's what, it, that's what MMT um, essentially stands for. So should we have taxes on working people at all? Well, it depends who you ask. And, and again, I think that a lot of MMT economists would say we are not ideological. This is just, uh, this is arithmetic. This is theory insofar that it is arithmetic, not political. Uh, so the question of whether what we should do with this money, uh, that is a very political question, and it, it depends who you ask. And is there any difference between taxing working people and taxing the rich from this perspective? It depends what your goals are. If your goal is to uh, reduce the incomes of the rich, then taxing the rich is a very good thing. If your goal is to make sure that the working people have more money in their pockets to spend, to start businesses, to buy things with, uh, then maybe you don't want to tax them as much. You kind of start, you kind of work backwards. You think, well, what, what, what goals do we have in mind? What do we want our society to look like? And then you can adjust the taxes accordingly. One of my favorite examples of money as a social construct is those pictures that we saw of American $100 bills that were sent to Afghanistan on this cargo plane. They filled a cargo plane with shrink-wrapped packages of $100 bills on pallets, $12 billion. And I always wondered, this this actually come out of the tax contributions of working people? Was this their tax withholding? I don't think so. I think they just printed the $100 bills and put them on a, on a plane to Afghanistan. Another example is the 2008 bailout. The United States did spend many billions of dollars on the bailout. That's a great example, actually, of what these economists are saying. The government just created the money, the funds to bail out these banks. It was a digital transaction that happened on a computer. Suddenly they had the money. Uh, that money was not taken from somebody and put in somebody else's account. It was, it was created. The government is what is the entity that creates dollars. And uh, it did after the financial crisis, as it does almost every day. So we're talking about modern monetary theory known as MMT. One of its most uh, prominent uh, spokespeople is an economist named Stephanie Kelton. Tell us about her. That's right. Stephanie Kelton is an economist at the University of Kansas. She's probably the most, I suppose, public-facing figure of the MMT movement. And she actually worked for Bernie Sanders for quite some time. She worked as an economic advisor to Bernie Sanders. I wouldn't say that his campaign was heavily influenced by MMT's rhetoric, but people in the movement and people in, the, in these academic departments who I've spoken to said they did notice a subtle shift in the way that Bernie was talking about money. You know, instead of talking about the budget deficit, he started talking about education deficits and healthcare deficits. The idea there being that we should be talking about more substantive problems and substantial uh, insufficiencies than numbers on a balance sheet. The critics say, but what about inflation? What about inflation? Inflation is this big, scary monster that everybody has nightmares about. I think one of the people 
in the MMT movement, and I don't remember which one, uh, this was in a video I watched, there's a ton of MMT videos online, said that inflation is it's like Hitler, you know, at the end of every argument about economics, <laughs> whenever you advocate for making, for spending more money or for having more money circulate, someone's going to cry Hitler. So inflation per MMT uh, can be contained and controlled through taxation. And they also contend that it's not as much of an issue as we think until we have full employment, until everybody who wants a job is making enough money and, and able to, to pay their expenses and to pay their living costs, et cetera, et cetera. Only then do we truly have to worry about inflation. You say that MMT has something that most obscure economic doctrines don't have. I'm quoting now, a band of devoted bloggers and commenters and a street team of young, politically engaged people. Tell us about that. You would not believe how many people are crazy about MMT on the Internet. I don't know if they're all real people, but since this article went up, which was a day ago, there's just been an enormous response. And it's really impressive. I think the young people, especially today, are so excited by the prospect of there being a different way to think about the economy. Uh, there's a deep, deep level of mistrust in institutions. I mean, people talk about the crisis of democracy, and I think that people feel like the economic systems that we live under aren't working for them. And so when you present them with an intuitive, straightforward way of thinking about money that is grounded in facts and that also happens to offer a lot of very utopian uh, outcomes, depending on how you use it, uh, that's incredibly appealing. So uh, the street teams, the, the, there's lots of groups on Twitter. There's, lots of, there's some groups on Facebook. There's um, a conference network run out, run out of Columbia Law School that puts on seminars uh, pretty frequently with some big-name speakers. And uh, I, I honestly don't think I could have written the article without so many people from this movement saying, I'll sit you down and we'll explain everything to you. I mean, it felt a little <laughs> bit like being converted converted to some religion you know it was it was real it was like that and i thought this is really this is really something and it's really a sign of of the times we live in and i've heard that the the street team that's uh, excited about mmt uh, also exists outside the united states is that right yeah it has a big appeal in europe as you can imagine um many european countries were just uh, pummeled by austerity measures that were imposed by the europeans and again, I, when you have youth unemployment that's reaching 40, 50 percent in some countries where you have, you know, hospitals that don't have the right supplies, as was the case in Greece during their during the really bad years, uh, when you have, again, a lack of faith in, in the institutions that run Europe, uh, when you have somebody that's giving an option that does not involve austerity, uh, that's that's like music period. Pardon my cliché. <laughs> well, it seems like this is a great way to deal with a society where people can't make ends meet, even if they work two or three, you know, part-time gig jobs. Isn't this as big a political issue as we have today? I think it's an enormous issue. And I think that at the root of it is there, there are enormous preconceptions about how the economy works. Most people, and I, and I don't say this to, uh, to insult anybody, most people don't understand how it works. And even people who do understand how it works just resort to the same ways of thinking, ways of speaking about it. Uh, the deficits I mentioned were, were one example. 
And uh, I think MMT brings that to the surface. It's really the perfect time for MMT, I think, just in the way that we've seen universal basic income go from something that was utterly inconceivable five or six, five or 10 years ago to it being embraced by Silicon Valley moguls, major economists, heads of state. Uh, I, I think this be, all speaks to the, the, the critical moment when people can't make ends meet and there, there isn't enough and yet there ought to be. Tusa Araxia Abrahamian, she has the lead piece in the nation's new issue on capitalism. It's called Debt is Not the End, the Rockstar Appeal of Modern Monetary Theory. Read it at thenation.com. Atusa, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much. I hope that it wasn't too noisy. One of the darkest days at the end of what we call the 60s came on September 9, 1971, after 1,300 prisoners at the Attica Correctional Facility in upstate New York rebelled to protest years of mistreatment. They took hostages, guards, and civilian employees, and for the next four days, the inmates negotiated with state officials for improved living conditions. On the fifth day, the state police attacked. They killed 39 people. 29 prisoners and 10 hostages. More than 100 other people were severely injured. The true story of what happened at Attica was covered up by officials for decades. But now, 46 years later, we finally know the full story, thanks to the tireless and terrific work of Heather Ann Thompson. She teaches American history at the University of Michigan, and she's been writing about mass incarceration for the New York Times, The Atlantic, Salon, and other places. And her book is out now. It's called Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. She's received lots of awards for the book, including the Pulitzer Prize in History and the Bancroft Prize, and she just won the Nation Institute's Ridenauer Book Prize. She joins us now from Ann Arbor. Heather Ann Thompson, welcome to the program, and congratulations on all the awards. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Well, let's start with the Attica Correctional Facility in 1971. One reviewer of your book called it a hellhole. Is that going too far? No, I don't think so. Um, I think that uh, it, it bears mentioning that I think prisons today are worse than they were in 1971. And as I hope my book describes, they were pretty brutal in 1971. Um, this is a Severely overcrowded facility uh, in 1971, just jam-packed with, uh, you know, overwhelmingly uh, poor men, men of color, uh, men who had very few rights in the prison, including basic human rights. And that's what brings them together. And the rebellion, had it been planned as a rebellion? No. One of the interesting things after the whole thing is over is that the state would like to prove that this was a conspiracy, that somehow there had been a big plan from the left on the outside and the prisoners on the inside to take over this prison and to really uh, hold the state feet to the fire. It turns out that the story is more complicated. These guys, ironically, given their own uh, treatment in the system, had this kind of remarkable faith that if they went through the proper channels, they could get their conditions uh, improved. So before this ever happens, they are writing letters to state senators and to 
the Commissioner of Corrections, really hoping for some basic improvements. Um, they're also organizing in the prison. They're educating one another. They are in political organizations. But there is no plan to take over this facility. Why it all jumps off on September 1971, again, ironically, is down to management, prison management. They uh, yet again made a decision kind of unilaterally to punish one group of prisoners. In this case, they locked a group of prisoners and the guards escorting them in a hall, didn't tell anybody what for, what was happening, and everyone panics. And in that panic, a gate came open that allowed access to the nerve center of the prison. And then it was just complete chaos after that. Uh, That is until it became a more organized rebellion. There were an amazing few days uh, before the state troopers attacked uh, when the New York State Commissioner of Corrections let the prison rebels speak to the media and engage in negotiations with the state. That, That seems... That seems good to me. How did it happen? What were these negotiations like? Well, it's interesting because this is a moment of a real conflicted opinion about what to do in prison. So you have some very devoted prison liberal reformers, and that just so happens to have been uh, the case of the Commissioner of Corrections, Russell Oswald. He was a prison reformer. In his mind, uh, there was no question these prisons needed uh, fixing. They needed reform. And so when this eruption happens, when these guys uh, ask to negotiate with the state, actually demand to negotiate with the state, he thinks negotiations um, are are, are not maybe ideal, but certainly understandable. So he supports the idea of negotiations. Now, meanwhile, of course, the governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, the state troopers uh, amassing on the outside and the guards on the outside, think it's a terrible idea. And so you have a lot of forces at work here. Um, The media being there was very important, though, because, you know, the prisoners understood then um, that prisoners are locked away from everybody, right? The prisons are these closed institutions. So it was critical in their view to have the media there, frankly, to make sure that everyone negotiated in good faith and that they were not brutalized uh, should the prison be retaken. And what were the prisoners' demands in these negotiations? You know, remarkably uh, straightforward. There's a moment uh, after these guys negotiate, I'm sorry, elect leaders to represent them from each of the cell blocks. This is sort of the early hours and they set up their negotiating team, there's all kinds of demands, Um, some more radical than others. The one that gets a lot of attention is the demand that there will be transport to a non-imperialist country. Um, But all of those kind of more pie-in-the-sky demands get voted down, and what they're left with is uh, very practical, uh, basic human rights demands, you know, having to do with diet, having to do with you know, for example, asking that there be some Spanish-speaking guards, making sure that visitation was improved, asking to end slave labor in prisons, some very basic human rights goals. And um, and they, in fact, do get negotiated quite successfully over the course of four long days and nights. And then came the assault. Tell us, tell us about that. You know, in short, what the, what the nation is told is that this Uh, assault on the fifth morning was the result of the prisoners on that fifth morning not surrendering when they were asked to do so. My book uh, makes clear that this assault was inevitable. Uh, The governor was determined to draw a line in the sand with these prisoners at Attica. He wanted to be tough on crime. It was pretty clear from the records that they knew they were going to kill hostages when they went in. 
They knew there would be a bloodbath. They did it anyway. And it's clear that they did it because this was a moment when the governor was really persuaded that he had to show he was tough on crime. And I think even all the way up to the White House, there was a feeling that there was a black revolution afoot that needed to be stopped. And prisons were the front line of that place where they were all going to you know, battle this out together. The details in your book of the the attack, the assault, are, are, are horrifying. Why do you think the White Guards massacred so many people, shooting individuals many times? Why did they torture survivors afterwards? Can you explain any of that? Well, frankly, you know, this, this part of the book is the most difficult to read, I'm sure, and it was, it was absolutely the most difficult to write because at some level, there's no uh, vocabulary sufficient to really portray, convey the horror of what happened when those troopers and corrections officers retook Attica. It was a level of violence that one really can't understand without understanding um, the degree of racism in this country. Every act of violence was punctuated with racial epithets and degradation and the, the, the dehumanization of prisoners that takes place that unfortunately, you know, I walk the reader through is, uh, is fundamentally about not seeing these people as human beings. And that's really the only way I think we can understand it. You mentioned uh, Richard Nixon, president at the time of Attica, Adam Gopnik, who reviewed your book in The New Yorker, wrote, no matter how badly you think of Richard Nixon, you have not thought badly enough, close quote. <laughs> what, uh, what did Richard Nixon, what did you learn about Richard Nixon's views of the Attica uprising? Well, you know, to this point about understanding the brutality as so deeply informed by racism, the same really comes clear about uh, about Nixon. We knew it, but to hear him actually uh, question Rockefeller after this horrific massacre, and he essentially has one question, which is, was this a black business? And when Rockefeller assures him that it was, which of course was absurd, it wasn't, it was multiracial, but he says it was, and that's all Nixon needs to know. So you get to see the kind of naked naked racism of the president of the United States and all of the folks associated with him. And then you found in the White House tapes that Nixon says after the end, I think this is going to have a hell of a salutary effect on future prison riots. He likes it. Well, that's the whole point, right? So the whole thing that becomes clear um, digging back into Attica is that this was a moment when the state was determined to show any anyone on the ground challenging its authority that participatory democracy was not going to be tolerated, at least not in this form and fashion. And so it's, it's a shutting down of that. Um, by the way, of course, Attica is one of many of these incidents around the same period. This is in line with Kent State. It's in line with Wounded Knee. It is in line with... Uh, the Chicago 68 convention. This is a moment uh, when it really is war, uh, a war for who has the right to speak for the nation, I think. There are a couple of real heroes among the white officials. My favorites are the local medical examiners who had been told to stick to the official story and report that the inmates had killed the hostages. Tell us about the medical examiner. Well, he is one of the, the heroes, the coroner on the ground who 
uh, is actually uh, really brave. I mean, he can see that these guards, these hostages have been killed not by the prisoners, as the state tells the world uh, via the media, but that they've been killed by gunshot wounds, by the troopers. And he goes public with that knowledge, an enormous cost to himself. He's hounded for the rest of his life. And there's others, you know, there's a whistleblower inside of the state's Attica investigation who makes clear the state could have indicted troopers and chose not to. There's a, there are a couple of heroes. I, I'd say that the most extraordinary heroes, though, are the prisoners and the surviving hostages themselves. We would not know uh, the full extent of what happened at Attica were it not for uh, their determination to insist that this story was told. Um, you know, decade after decade, no matter how unbelievable it seemed and no matter how much they were disbelieved. Well, it's clear there were major human rights abuses committed by the authorities at Attica, torture and killing. Uh, how has the state of New York dealt with those uh, abuses and, and the people who committed them? Well, I think that's why, it, it, to some extent, the book got uh, a, a bit of attention um, that was controversial. Two-thirds of the book is about what happens after the uprising, and that's because none of the members of law enforcement who had actually committed the crime at Attica had done the shooting. None of them stood trial, and uh, none of them were ever held accountable. And so uh, the majority of the book traces why that was the case. And in short, it was the case thanks to a very concerted effort on the part of the governor's office, the state police, and state uh, investigators to make sure that they were not held accountable and that indeed Attica would be uh, understood as all down to prisoner uh, misdeeds. And that had a chilling effect on the future of our criminal justice policy. After Attica, we got supermax prisons, permanent solitary, and the beginning of mass incarceration. Is it fair to say that Attica was a cause of all that? Well, I think it was certainly uh, it was certainly important to shifting the public's mood in such a punitive direction. I think that the war on crime had begun before uh, Attica. It had really started under Johnson. And we had already begun moving towards more punitive policy. But what Attica really did, in effect, it, it, it helps to explain why the nation that had been in favor of prisoner rights had been considering decarceration and had been uh, favorable to ideas like better guard training become so hostile to the idea that prisoners have rights that they are, in fact, even people. And Attica is a critical moment where I think the nation sours on uh, prison reform and sours on the idea that people are redeemable in prison. The book is Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. It won the Nation Institute's Ridenour Book Prize and a bunch of other prizes, too. Heather Ann Thompson, we salute you for writing this book, and thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me on. Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide, hosted by the sports editor of The Nation, and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants. So even if you're a sports fan who hates politics or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday, now at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Take, 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 take the food. We're rich. Always just the food. We need to eat. Go, go, go.
Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.